morning, y'all. That was good, way better than the first service, like way better. So y'all win. Um, before we get started, I got one little housekeeping thing, and that is this. Our uh, student ministry, the 412 student ministry, is going to be coming out into the streets with us tomorrow night uh, in the, to, to work alongside of the, of the M2540, the home. Everything's got a number and letters. But to come alongside and work with the homeless ministry tomorrow night. So tonight, the student ministry gathering tonight, if you, and we hope that you have students that are going to participate in that, if you do, make sure they're there, make sure that you're there with them, because I'm going to spend about, uh, along with uh, Stephen Fordbear, our student pastor, spend about 10 or 15 minutes kind of explaining what happens out on the streets on Monday nights so that you have a good image of that. And we really want you as a parent to go as well, to come out with us as well. So that'll be tonight uh, uh, during the 412 gathering. Now, um, Jesus did not leave us with an autobiography. In, in, in fact, we don't have anything really, we don't have any record of anything that he ever wrote. I would imagine that he wrote a lot. Bottom line is we don't have any record of anything that he wrote. However, the Spirit of God chose four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to pen through the Lord's, through the, the Spirit's uh, inspiration, to pen four accounts, four, four different accounts of the life of Christ. Each one of those guys, they wrote in their own style. They wrote viewing Christ's life through the lens of, of their life, of their experience, of their emotions, of their brains. Everything they saw was viewed through, through themselves. Each one had their own, <clears throat> their own perspective. Each one's writing was inspired, though, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then there's a few places in the Scripture that kind of tell us what that means. Peter, in Second Peter, said this about inspiration. He said this about the, the human authors uh, of the text. He said in, in, uh, in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he said, Each one spoke as they were carried along or moved along by the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to start a journey we're going to start a walk over the next several weeks through the book, through the gospel, according to Mark. Mark was, even though Matthew was first in your Bible, you know your Bible's not chronological, Mark was probably the first account of Christ's life that was ever written. It doesn't have all the discourses and all the theology that the other, that Matthew, Luke, and John really have. John is a masterpiece like unbelievably written. It's a Christological masterpiece. What all that means is it is totally Christ-centered and the way that it is written is just so elegant and beautiful. That's um, the book of John. Matthew and Luke are chock full of, of discourses and teachings that, and, and different uh, things that Jesus taught us. Tons of teaching materials in Matthew and Luke. Mark he don't have all that stuff, at least not to the degree that the other three do at all. Mark has nonstop action. Beginning to end, Mark has nonstop action. He uses the word immediately about 40 or 45 times in his book. Mark was written in Rome while Mark was in Rome. It was written to Romans. See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they had different audiences in mind in their writings. Matthew was very much written to a Jewish audience. Mark was very much written to a Roman audience. And the Romans were real 
uh, real fast-paced. Their society, very fast-moving, boom, 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 boom. And that's the way that, that Mark, the book of Mark, is written. Mark himself was a servant. He was an administrative assistant for Paul. And then he was an administrative assistant for Peter. Mark was not one of Jesus' guys. Mark, Mark was a helper of Paul and then of Peter. Mark wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a leader. He wasn't. Mark, the gospel according to Mark, was the product of Peter's eyewitness testimony. Mark was his secretary. Mark was his admin. Mark, this report that we have in the scriptures of, uh, of Mark's gospel, it is based on Peter's eyewitness testimony of the life of Christ. Peter and Mark were together 24-7 in Rome. Peter is on the streets preaching the gospel. Peter is in synagogues preaching the gospel. Peter is in buildings all over Rome preaching the gospel. Mark is right by his side the whole time. Mark probably heard Peter preach the gospel a thousand times. And so when Peter died, Mark writes it down. The Holy Spirit inspires him to write it down. And we know that Mark's gospel was written to Gentile Christians, not Jewish Christians. Because anything that has any Jewish flavor in Mark's gospel, he has to explain it. Matthew, full of Jewish stuff, written to a Jewish audience. He doesn't explain any of it because the audience he's writing to, they understand it already. Matthew begins his gospel with, with the genealogy of, of Jesus. Why? Because he needs to prove, Matthew does, to prove that Jesus is a legal heir to the throne of David. Luke begins his gospel talking about uh, all of the events that lead up to the birth of Jesus. John's gospel starts out in eternity past reminding us that Jesus is God in the flesh. Mark, he doesn't start out talking about the Lord's lineage or his heritage or his birth. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. He presents him as a servant. And a servant don't need a genealogy. He needs references. He doesn't need a birth certificate. Mark just dives into the action. Mark just dives into the history. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now this is not the beginning of either Mark. It's not the beginning of, of Jesus. It is the beginning of the gospel. It's the beginning of the good news of when the Lord Jesus came to the earth and died upon a cross and rose again. Y'all, that's the gospel. This is the beginning of that. There's three beginnings kind of in the Scriptures. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God created. And then the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is when He took upon Himself human flesh. Paul said in Philippians, Paul wrote about this in Philippians chapter 2, he said uh, in verse 6, he said, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the beginning of the gospel of the good news, of the best news ever, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is when he became a man. It was when he took on flesh. Mark says that in verse 1 of chapter 1. And then the next six or seven verses... Verse uh, 2 through 8, Mark is describing the ministry of John the Baptist. 
who was Jesus' cousin. And so he's, he kind of explains uh, John the Baptist's ministry as the announcer of the arrival of the Son of God. And then in verse 9, and we're going to land, this is where we're going to land today, in uh, verse 9, 10, and 11. He begins an actual history of the Son of God. He begins that history not with Jesus' ancestry, not with some angels blowing trumpets, not with genealogy or the record of his birth or shepherds or angels or wise men. None of that is in Mark. He doesn't say anything about Joseph or Mary. He doesn't say anything about Jesus' childhood. He doesn't say anything about his, his, his youth. He doesn't say anything about his adulthood. Mark just jumps in to the history of the Son of God at the beginning, at his first public appearance. Verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And you know, every movie you ever watch shows a bird landing on Jesus' shoulder. That ain't what happened. It doesn't say a, a dove landed on him. It says the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Dove are the gentlest flying birds. Dove land like a, they, when they land, they land like a glider. It's a descriptive thing. So he says, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven came, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In this passage, there's two important episodes in the life of Christ. Number one is this, he takes the God plunge. Jesus takes the God plunge. And number two uh, there is a voice from heaven. We're going to come back and talk at length about that voice from heaven. So number one is this. He was baptized. Jesus was baptized as an example for us. Verse 9 says he came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The message that his cousin John was preaching was a simple message. It was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of repentance. And here's what he said. He said, repent, you sinners, and turn to God. Give proof of your repentance by being baptized. That ought to make a flag go up. Jesus is getting ready to be baptized. But John's is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Of all the individuals that ever walked on the face of the earth, he's the one who committed no sin. He's the one who had nothing to repent of. And so I'm reading this last week. And I'm thinking, well, why, why in the world is he getting baptized? There doesn't seem like there's any reason for him to get baptized. Well, the book of Mark doesn't give you any answers. Mark is just flying off to the next thing. That is the way the book is written. And when you read your Bible and you've got these little letters and numbers that are all over the text and they tell you to reference Matthew or something else, consider doing that. In this case... It sends us to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, and he tells us why. Matthew tells us why. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, and what that means is John probably sees his cousin, sees Jesus coming towards him, and he's thinking, Are you kidding me? He's coming here to be baptized? He needs to be baptizing me. And so it says John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be, this is where the answer to our question is, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting. The Net Bible uses the word right. 
Other translations use the word proper. For thus it is fitting or right or proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And all that means is that he did it because it was the right thing to do. He was setting an example for me and you. Baptism is an important part of the gospel. Jesus launches his public ministry by being baptized. His last command in Matthew 28 is to do what? Go out into the nations, make disciples, and do what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The first message from the newborn church in Acts chapter 2. We talked about last week and the week before. Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon at Pentecost. The first message in the newborn church. Acts 2 verse 38 says this. Repent and be God plunged. That's the Ed translation of the Bible, I guess. We're going to publish that. It's repent and be God plunged, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happened on that day? 3,000 new believers were baptized because baptism is important. There's nothing salvific, there's nothing saving in that water. When we plunge somebody down into water in baptism, there's nothing in that water that saves them. Hang on to that for a second. I want to give you three things, two or three things that the scriptures, that the book teaches us about baptism. Number one is the sequence. What is the sequence that is here? And the sequence is repent, believe, be baptized. It is not be baptized and then you believe. No, 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 no. It is repent, believe, and then be baptized. Baptism is for people who have placed saving faith in Christ. And I don't want to stand up here and hammer other denominations, hammer other traditions, hammer maybe even the way that that you grew up. But if you were baptized as an infant, you did not experience biblical baptism. You didn't. You didn't. And it's not, certainly it's not your fault because you were a baby. You didn't have any choice. If mom and daddy took you to the to church and they and they baptized you, then they, they did that. We dedicate babies here. We do not baptize infants. We don't. That dedication is a dedication of the church and mama and daddy to raise that child in a godly home. That is a dedication. We don't baptize babies because it's not biblical. There is you cannot find a single verse in the New Testament that would even suggest that it's proper to baptize infants. Baptism is an expression of faith by an individual. And so it cannot be practiced by an infant who can't express that faith. You can't. Only the baptism of believers is authorized by the Scripture. During the first 300 years of the church, only people old enough to place their faith in Christ were baptized. Well, okay, how did churches... And when did churches start sprinkling babies and calling it baptism? And it was in the early 300s, 313 A.D. Constantine, uh, the emperor Constantine, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. He's trying to build the empire. He's got a thousand soldiers in front of him. He wants them all to be Christian. He gets some priest to bless a bucket of water, say it's holy, and he slings it all over the army. It's an efficient way to do it. He says, hmm, I can be real efficient and I can do that with babies. We'll get babies, we'll get some priest to, to bless the bucket of water and we'll throw it all out, we'll sprinkle it all over the babies. The problem with that is it's not biblical. 
It, it is, it, he's trying, and he, and he succeeded, at building up Rome. But it's not biblical. Y'all get that? But that's what he did. To be baptized, you got to be old enough to be able to profess your faith in Christ. Your faith. You can't have mom and daddy's faith. They can lead you to the cross. But mom and daddy can't believe for you. You profess your belief. How old is old enough? I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm supposed to know to give you an answer. I don't know. Maybe it's seven, six, eight. For Ed Griffinagin, it was 37. So I'm glad I didn't get wiped out before that. I mean, I don't know how old is, is, is old enough. I do know this. Right now, we got nine or 10 or 11 kids in our, in our kids program that have professed their faith in Christ as their Savior. And on March 31st, we're having a God plunge party. And we're going to get 10 or 11 uh, kids wet. I think that is cool. It's cool, y'all. It's a big deal. But you know what? They didn't profess mama's faith. They professed their faith. About 15 years ago, there was a second grader in a, uh, in a church that we attended right shortly after I got saved. And that second grader, how old are you in second grade? Seven or eight years old, I guess. Nod. Yeah, okay. So this kid was saved and... He was going to get baptized, and mom and daddy set up the baptism in the in the church that that in the church that we were at, and uh, and they went to meet with the pastor who was happened to be a buddy of mine, and the the child, the seven or eight year old, was like struggling with the word baptized, right? And so he he sits down and he grabs the pastor's hand, and he says, "Brother Don, I have invited Jesus into my heart, and now I'm going to be advertised." And, and so mom and dad are like dying that he says that to Don. But Don says, he's right. Whenever a person is baptized, they're advertising that they're a follower of Christ. That is, that is a perfect image of what happens in a, baptiz- in a baptism. So I'm going to ask you, have you been advertised for Jesus by being baptized? So the first thing the book tells us about uh, about baptism is the sequence. The second thing it does is the meaning, the meaning of baptism. And some people, some people will tell you, and you may have heard it, you probably have heard it, that baptism is necessary for salvation. Oh, no, it's not necessary for salvation. had a good friend of mine that he absolutely believes that you, if you are not baptized, then you are going to hell. That book does not say that. I said to him, what about the thief on the cross? And he said, well, that was different. I'm like, dude, you don't get to say, well, that's different when something disagrees with what you're saying. The thief on the cross was saved on the cross and he died on the cross. He didn't get baptized. Jesus' words are that you're going to be with me. And so there's nothing salvific, again, about those waters. We believe, and the Bible clearly states, that we are saved by grace through faith, period. We bring nothing to the table. By grace through faith. It's not, it, it's not something I do. If I can do it, then I earned it. Well, that, by grace through faith. It would be sal- Any other way it would be salvation by works. No, believer's baptism is a beautiful symbol of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And it, it, it symbolizes uh, uh, our new life in Christ. 
The water is a picture of the grave. When you go under the water, it symbolizes the, the death and burial of the old person that you were. And when you come up out of the water, it symbolizes the new person that you have become in Christ. I remember it Christmas Eve, the year I got saved. Susan and I were baptized together, y'all. And I can remember, and I got saved on, on January the 17th of that year. I remember coming up out of the water. And I was a believer. There was nothing about that that saved me. But I remember the feeling of coming out of the water. I, it's unexplainable, really. But I just remember that that was a walk in newness or something. It's a picture of that new person that I had become. Broken, sinful, and fallen. But I was still a new person. When we baptize believers here, we quote a gorgeous passage in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, that says we are buried with Him in baptism and we are raised to walk in the newness of life. We're, we're walking in the newness of life. When I say that baptism is a symbol, symbols aren't unimportant. That does, because something is a symbol, it doesn't make it unimportant. The American flag is just a piece of cloth with some red, white, and blue on it. But it symbolizes something gigantic that I want to choke somebody out when I see them burning it. Pastor, probably not supposed to say that, but, 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 it, but just because it's a symbol doesn't mean it's unimportant. Baptism is really the, the same way because it symbolizes the biggest issue in all of the Scripture. Y'all, that's your salvation. So to say that baptism is unimportant is absurd. To say that it saves you is also absurd. It is a symbol of that salvation. The, and so number three thing that the Scripture says uh, uh, about baptism is that is, it talks about the method. What is the method of baptism? And that word baptize in the Greek language, it was not a religious word, whatever that means. It was not a religious word. The word baptize was a word that was used for a, if a woman was going down to the river to wash clothes, she was baptizing the clothes in the river. If a man, a cloth merchant, had a tunic or a shirt or something that he was going to dye blue, he baptized that shirt in the dye to make that shirt blue. It's not, it was not a, quote, religious word. And so you may wonder, well, why do some folks still... Here's the deal. That word baptize, it means immerse. It means dip. Or it, and, and it means plunge. We use the word God plunge because it's kind of cool. But we use the word God plunge because it's biblical because that's what that word means. Immerse or dip or plunge. And so you wonder why do folks, some folks, still sprinkle? Well, part of the reason is the efficiency, what's left over of the efficiency of the Romans, really, of the Roman Catholic Church. But there's another reason. 1609, here's a little history lesson. Who was the king of England in 1609? Whoever can answer that question, my wife will give you $10. You're not, you don't get to answer. James the what? You were in the first service. That's right, it's King James. King James the sixth was the king of England. He commissioned, you do know your Bible was not written in English. Your Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. King James commissioned some scholars to, to translate the Hebrew Old Testament in English, the, the Greek New Testament in English. That's where the King James translation of the Bible comes from, right? 
and transliterated, that's right. When, uh, but when they, when they were translating Mark, what we believe is the first, uh, the first gospel, if they'd have said, when Jesus came to John to be immersed, to be plunged, to be dipped in the Jordan River, they'd have been in trouble with the king. And the king hired them. Why would they have been in trouble? Because the king was a member of the Anglican church. How you reckon the king had been baptized? He was sprinkled as a baby. So they couldn't translate it sprinkle because there's a whole other Greek word for sprinkle. So what did they do? They just didn't translate it. They just created a word, baptize. Baptize as an English word. It didn't even exist until then. Besides the meaning of the word, there's other proof uh, other than uh, that John baptized by immersion, other than this. The the Bible says in John chapter 3, now John was baptizing at Enon near Salem because there was plenty of water, the Bible says, plenty of water, and people were constantly coming to be baptized. If you've ever seen the Jordan River, The mighty Jordan River is not mighty in size. It is mighty in significance. Most of it is knee-deep, ankle-deep. You can walk and wade across the Jordan River. But the text of the Bible says that John took them here to be baptized where the water was deep so that they could be immersed. So I'm going to ask you this. Since, if you're a believer, since you believed, since you were saved, have you been baptized? So big point number one is that he gave us an example. He set an example for us in the beginning of Mark. The second point, and this is so critical, is that Jesus was identified by a voice from heaven. The Bible says as he was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, What? You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Y'all, it is important that you know who you are. Years ago, George Bush, President H.W. Uh, Bush, George H.W. was taking a tour of a nursing home facility, and he's walking down the hall, and he's got his entourage kind of behind him, and he's going down the hall, and this little old man came sh- comes shuffling up to him, uh, to President Bush, and President Bush shakes his hand, and he says, Do you know who I am? And the man stared at him for a minute, and he and trying to recognize who he is. And the little old man said to, to uh, President Bush, he said, no, I don't know who you are, but if you ask one of those nurses over there, they'll be happy to tell you who you are. <laughs> Y'all, it's good to know who you are, but it's more important for you to know who Jesus is. It's, there's tons of theories and all kind of mumbo-jumbo out there at who he is. Muslims would say that he is a great prophet. They would even say that he was born of a virgin, but there's nothing happened on the cross. There's plenty of people that are going to say he was a wise teacher like Confucius. The Jews would say that he was just another rabbi in a long list of rabbis that made crazy claims. People would say all kind of different things. But here's what I'm going to tell you. If you you and me were at the Jordan River when Jesus was baptized, we'd have heard the voice from heaven. And the voice from heaven identified him as the Son of God. We'd have heard it. It was audible. We would have heard that. There were three times, that being one of them, in Jesus' ministry where God spoke from heaven verifying his identity. That was one. He also uh, spoke 
about Jesus. One day, Jesus took Peter and James and John up on a high mountain, the, the Bible says, and he was transfigured. That word is metamorphed. He was metamorphosed. We talked about that word last week and the week before in Romans chapter 12 where, uh, where the, the text says to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Same word, metamorphosed. And so Jesus was transfigured before his guy's eyes and they saw him talking with Moses and with Elijah. And on that occasion when the heavens opened up and what did God say? The very same thing he said at the baptism. This is my beloved son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then he added, listen to him. When God speaks, it's thunderous. The voice is thunderous. The third time that he did it was, was in the days leading up, the days right prior to the cross. Jesus had been constantly predicting his death, constantly predicting its coming. The text says Jesus turned towards Jerusalem and he's constantly predicting his death to glorify the Father. There's over and over in the text, he says, I need to glorify the Father, glorify the Father. And suddenly he breaks out in prayer in, J in uh, John chapter 12, verse 28 says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And the, what glorified it was the revelation of his Son. He says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered and others said that an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice came for your sake, not mine. Well, what do we learn from that? First thing we learn from that is that we need to be listening to God. And, and identity is important. He identifies this Jesus as his son. Back to Romans 6, verse 4 symbolic of the resurrection. We are raised to walk in the newness of life. When we are saved, we have a new identity. When we are saved, we walk in the newness of life. So let's just see what God says about us. Let's see what the text, God's Word, says about us. And we need to do this, y'all, because the world of flesh and the devil says some pretty disparaging things about who we are. The world, the flesh, and the devil says you're an orphan. The deceiver says nobody likes you. You're bound to sin. God condemns you. You're a slave. You're rejected. You'll always be like you are. You'll always feel the way you feel. You're alone. You're guilty. You're blameworthy. You're full of shame. You're unforgiven. And most of all, you are unloved. That is what the world, the flesh, and the devil tells you. And it tells you that all the time. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Our... God clearly identified who Christ is. Did he clearly identify who me and you are? The answer to that is yes. And my prayer is that what I'm getting ready to do, that you, it overwhelms you. That is my prayer. It overwhelms me, completely overwhelms me. I want us to be overwhelmed with what God says about us. The next two or three screens, honest to God, I want you to take a picture of the screen because it's going to be what God, who He says you are. And when you're laying in the bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and the devil is all over you, telling you that you're a scumbag, telling you that you're, you're dirty, telling you that you're this or that, open your phone up and look at who God says you are and then go to the text of the Scripture. Have that. 
I, want, I really do want you to take a picture of it. Let's just walk through some of these. And there's hundreds of places in the Scripture where God tells us who we are. John 1.12, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He says, I'm a child of God. The world, the flesh, and the devil says you're an orphan. John 15.15 says, I have called you friends. So he says, I'm his friend. The world, the flesh, and the devil says, no, no, you're his enemy. Romans 6.6 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. So now I'm no longer a slave to sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil wants to trap you in the sin and keep you there. God says, no, no, Ed, you are no longer a slave to that. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Does no condemnation mean some condemnation? No, it means none. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I will not be condemned. I'm not condemned by God. The world, the flesh, and the devil says he's a God of judgment and he is going to condemn you and that is all he does. Romans 8.2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So he says, I'm free. I am free. In fact, he says, I'm free indeed. The world, the flesh, and the devil says, no, I've got you. I've got you. You are not free. Romans 15.7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So I'm welcomed and I'm accepted. And the world, the flesh, and the devil says, no, 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 you're rejected. The Lord says, no, 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 you are accepted. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So I'm connected to the Lord. The world, the flesh, and the devil says, no, you're not. You're an orphan. You're isolated and you're disconnected. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So I'm a new creation. The world, the flesh, and the devil says, no, you are who you used to be. You're a drug addict, you'll always be a drug addict. The Bible says, no, sir, no, sir. When I come to live in you, you are a new creation. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I am united with every one of you. And every one of you that have bowed the knee are, are all united with each other. The world, the flesh, and the devil says, no, you're isolated out on an island by yourself and you ain't got nobody to talk to. That's what the world says. Galatians 4, 7 says, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I'm done being a slave. I'm done with being a slave. If I'm not a slave, I'm a child of his. He is my Abba Father. I'm a child of his. And if I'm a child of his, I'm an heir. I'm an heir. I'm an heir to his promise because I'm not a slave anymore. Ephesians 1, 4 says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That text says I'm chosen. He chose me. He chose you. That finger came down from heaven and I had, this was in the pit of hell. And He plucked me out of there. Right? He plucks me out of there and the text says, and now I'm blameless because He chose me. Ephesians 1.7 says, in, we, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. I'm redeemed. He bought me back. I'm forgiven. 
the world, the flesh, and the devil says, no, you're not forgiven. You're guilty, and you're not forgiven. says, you're not redeemed. I'm going to hold you down. And God says, no, 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 you're forgiven. And God doesn't say, I forgive you, but I can't forget. No, God says, you're forgiven, and I do forget. I put your sin as far as the east is from the west. It's not God that bring, keeps bringing. Don't be bringing the same crap to the cross. When you are forgiven, you are forgiven. I want you all to understand that. That is so hard for us to do. It, it is so hard. We want to keep dragging the same stuff to the cross. Don't do that. He says, you are forgiven, you are redeemed. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with, she, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ because of his great mercy because of his great riches i've been made alive the world the flesh the devil says no you are dead in your trespasses but the lord says no 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 i've made you alive ephesians 2:10 i hope you're getting overwhelmed cuz i am ephesians 2:10 says for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works i am fearfully and wonderfully made i am his workmanship i am created in his image He's not created in my image. I'm created in his, his image. Why? To do His good works. Those good works don't put you in His image. He created me to do that. Fearfully and wonderfully. Ephesians 5.8 For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light of the world. I'm light. The world says, no, I'm keeping you in the dark. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You are the light. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven, so I'm a citizen of heaven. The world, the flesh, and the devil says, no, you're not. You're an orphan. But Jesus says, no, you're a citizen of heaven. If Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I am protected. His peace, which I can't even explain, guards my heart and my mind and protects me every day. Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply every need. Does that mean some needs, y'all? Every need he will supply according to the, His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I'm fulfilled in Christ, the world, the flesh. And the devil says, no, 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 you're empty. God says, no, I'm filling you up. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. So I'm an emissary for Him. I'm an emissary. I'm part of a holy priesthood. You are part of a holy priesthood. The devil wants me to keep my mouth shut. I told you last, I'm fixing to howl. The devil to told you to keep your mouth shut, but I told you to raise your voice. If you are an ambassador for Christ, raise your voice. Don't, don't shut up. Speak, speak up. Lastly, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. In the Greek, the emphasis is on the word so. For God so loved the world. Not just God so loved the world. He so loved the world. And it was because of that so-ness, that, that, that He so loved the world, that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I am wonderfully, amazingly, richly, lavishly loved by the Creator of the universe. In fact, He loves me so much, and He loves you so much that He came as a man to satisfy the penalty for your sin. Do you understand 
if God is just and God loves you so much, God is just, God loves you so much and it is His desire to save you, how does He maintain His justness and love you so much? He took the, and your penalty's got to be paid for. You understand that? It's got to be paid for. You get to choose to pay for it yourself if you want to and spend eternity in hell. You have that choice. But how did he solve the dilemma? He solved the dilemma by taking the hit himself. That's the gospel. He loves you so much that he came as a man to satisfy your penalty for your sin to redeem you and make eternal life available with him. That is indescribable love, y'all. Anything that I would say, anything I would say about it, any description that I would attempt, any image that I would try to paint, they would all fail if I'm trying to describe His love. Because the reality of the way that God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you and wants to free you from your baggage and the pain and the suffering and the guilt and the blame and the condemnation that you feel, any way that I would even begin to describe it would be inadequate. So what is he saying to you today? Is he saying to you today, do you need to identify with him through believer's baptism and take the God plunge? You know, is today the day that you will accept that he is who he says he is? Because he dang sure says that he's God. You can deny all kind of things, but you cannot deny that he says that he is God. Remember the sequence we talked about. Repent, believe, be baptized. Repent, believe, and be baptized. For God so loved. Next time you read that verse, read it that way. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. To Let today be the day that you get to be part of the whoever club. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Let today be the day that you bow the knee and become a whoever. I don't, hashtag whoever. I don't know. Let today be that day. And if it, if it is, look, you know what happens if today's that day for you? Just like it happened in that Jordan River. The Holy Spirit is going to descend. Now don't be walking outside and saying the bird didn't land on me. The Holy Spirit is going to descend and take residence in your heart. And when the devil comes knocking, the Holy Spirit's going to answer the door and say, Get out. Do you understand that? Just like it happened in that river. The Holy Spirit's going to descend, take up residence in your heart, just like it happened there. And look, if that happened to you today, put it on that connection card so that we can pray for you, pray with you. Whatever it is, there's a connection card in that seat back. Put on there that, that I got saved today. Put on there that I made Jesus my leader and my forgiver. And our prayer team is going to be back there. And if, if you want some prayer, if you want to pray with them, or for them to pray over you, Please go back there and do that. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we thank you so much that we get to do this. Lord, we thank you so much for your salvation. We thank you that you loved us enough to take the hit for us. Lord, I know that you're just. And I know that you uh, have immeasurable love for us. But you cannot maintain your justness. You cannot be a just God without the sin being taken care of. 
And Lord, only you could have come up with the answer that you would pay the penalty. It makes no sense that you would do that. It only makes sense that I would try to solve it myself. Everything about the world says it's cause and effect. Lord, and you say, no, 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 I'm going to give you exactly what you don't deserve, and that is grace. And so, Lord, we thank you for that grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow.